boom. <laughs> Man, you know, the, the Bible does say the firmament declares his handiwork. I mean, the, the heavens declare the glory of God. And when you see those northern lights married to that impressive music, uh, it says God is at work in this place and he has incredible power. And I want to talk about that today. But it needs God's prayer, you know, for what I'm about to say and, and, and for your ability to focus and apply as well. So let's do that. May the words of my mouth, Lord, the things that I want to share, the, the preparation that, that I've uh, endeavored, may, may it serve you well and may it be faithful to your word. And then, Lord, grant that, that we may apply, that we may receive, that our ears may be unstopped and uh, we may hear the message that you want for our life and, and for our witness in this world. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all the assembled hearts prove faithful in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, these are incredible days in which we live. You know, discouraging days, in fact, in which we live. You know, just in the last month, we had the terrorist attack in the City of Lights. I mean, people out enjoying an evening. You know, the streets uh, filled with people sitting at the, at the sidewalk cafes, enjoying a glass of wine and the friendship of, of others in a safe environment. And suddenly terrorists step out of... Uh, black SUVs and just begin shooting people or blowing themselves up and so many innocent people who had nothing whatsoever to do with uh, the war elsewhere uh, lost their life. And it's true in the shores of America as well as the violence continues in our cities. You know, I read the other day that there have been more than 2,500 gun incidents in the city of Chicago, more than 500 homicides in, in that city. And and then we read about this crazed gunman who enters a Planned Parenthood uh, office building in, in Colorado and just arbitrarily begins shooting people who had uh, nothing whatsoever to do with him. Or more recently, uh, the situation that occurred in L.A. where uh, an apparently radicalized young couple uh, begins to take out their vengeance on America in, in a crazy way in which... You know, they uh, conducted a, a campaign of war against people that they knew, people who had been gracious to them and left 14 dead in their wake. You just wonder, what is the world coming to and where is God in all of this? And if you're not wondering that, uh, social media and uh, newspapers and, and also the evening talk shows and uh, news reports uh, constantly put it in our face. The New York Daily News ran a cover that got quite a bit of exposure saying, God isn't fixing this. You know, you people need to step up. And it began to attack especially uh, some of the Republican leadership who are calling for prayer on behalf of those who are suffering, saying, it's just pious platitudes. You know, why should you pray? You should pray for forgiveness because you're not doing enough for gun control. And then the response on the right is, well, you guys are uh, not doing your job vetting these people that are entering our country and, and uh, you know, our uh, prospective terrorists among us. And, and one side accuses the other. And, and where is God in all of this? Even Christian people begin to wonder such things. It was interesting. There have been a lot of Christian responses to that uh, newspaper article that grabbed the attention of, of our nation. One was uh, uh, communicated by Dale Meyer, who's president of Concordia Seminary, where most of our pastors are trained. He was also a Lutheran Hour speaker 
uh, for a long while uh, before he assumed that job. And he said, of course God isn't fixing this. He said, uh, uh, God is saying, see how your life in America goes if you don't live in true fear of me. As long as you imagine you can fix it, God will keep giving you over to yourselves. One side claims, you know, gun control is the solution. The opposite side says every citizen armed is the solution. But both solutions are superficial because they presume that it's about what we do, not what God can do or what God wants to do. There is consequence for ungodly behavior. And whether you are faithful or not faithful, you will suffer the consequence of that activity in the world, in our nation, and I dare say in our own personal lives. It is true that America is becoming more secular by the moment. In fact, a a Pew Research study that came out this summer said that uh, people who declared no religious affiliation, I'm not talking Islamic, I'm not talking Jewish, I'm not talking Christian, just no religious affiliation, no belief in God at all, has risen in the last 17 years from 16% of our population to 23%, almost a quarter of the people in our nation say they have no real faith or religious connection at all. And then those who self-identified also with the Christian faith, 5 million fewer people, fewer people in the United States uh, this year than just seven years ago. And so the trends are moving away from a relationship with God. There's a proverb that says, there is nothing new under the sun. That which has been is that which will be. All things are wearisome, and there is no remembrance of earlier things. It's not a new time. You know, there have been times in the past when there's been a a godless society that has experienced the consequence of behavior, whether it be a nation or whether it be a family, a personal matter. And I want to share with you uh, about that time from the prophet Zephaniah. Now you say, is that a real name, Zephaniah? Is that actually a book in the Bible? Well, he's a minor prophet, and of the minor prophets, he's one of the most minor of all. I dare you to even try to find that book in your Bible without considerable paging back and forth. Uh, But it's an important message, and there's a, a verse in there that especially is powerful uh, to us, and one that you might know. It says, he will quiet us with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing, for our God is mighty to save. He was speaking to a people like us. He was speaking at a dark time uh, when people had become godless for the most part and, and were suffering the consequence of that behavior. The name Zephaniah itself means the Lord hides. Now, I don't know if this means that the Lord was... uh, hiding himself and nowhere to be found as people are crying, you know, God isn't fixing this, God isn't anywhere to be found, or whether his name actually means that the Lord hides his own in the midst of the struggle. The nature of this advice that Zephaniah is about to give both to the children of Israel and also to us is is of a father's love, and I want to stress that straight up and first and foremost. it's It's a father who is realizing that you could be discouraged during this time in your life. You know, I've, I've raised some boys, and I know that they've gone through times of great discouragement. 
and, and your heart breaks for them. You wish you could do something more for them. And you want to just extend a word of encouragement and comfort saying, you know, I'm in this with you. You're not alone in this. And, and that's what God is saying to the nation of Israel through the prophet Zephaniah. You know, I equate it to uh, the Billy Joel song, you know, you're only human, you know, when we suffer the consequence of, of bad decisions. In fact, he dedicated that song to teenage suicide prevention. And all the prophets from that song, which became a massive hit, uh, went for that purpose and still go for that purpose. In the lyrics of his song, he says, it's not easy to be living in this world of pain. You're going to be crashing into stone walls Again and again, or to rhyme, again and again. (laughs) It's all right. Sometimes that's what it takes. You're only human. You're allowed to make your share of mistakes. You know, though, we give up on God. Although, you know, we move away. God does not. There's a bumper sticker I saw one time. I've never forgot. It says, if God seems far away, guess who moved? You know, God, God didn't move away from you. And even now, the scripture says, all day long, he holds out a hand to an obstinate and disobedient people, whether it be a nation or whether it be a family. And that's the sense that I want you to understand is, as we read this counsel from Zephaniah. The Lord hides. Where is God? Is he hiding or is he just hiding me from the tragedy that is swirling around me? In any case, these are dark times. In fact, uh, the nation of Israel had just suffered 50 years of godless leadership. I mean, their kings didn't honor God and were all about themselves. One king after the other led them further and further away from the counsel and wisdom of God, mocked the prophets, even killed some of them. Zephaniah, on the other hand, was kind of a throwback. His great-great-grandfather was the righteous king Hezekiah. Now, just to put this in in, uh, context, Hezekiah was the king when Assyria came down and destroyed the northern kingdom, the ten tribes to the north, absolutely carried them away into captivity, never to be heard of again. And he had designs on the southern kingdom as well. But Isaiah came to uh, King Hezekiah, and he said, call the city to prayer. And so the whole city of Jerusalem came to prayer, and God sent an angel and destroyed Sennacherib's army, and they were spared. Zephaniah remembered the faithfulness of his great-great-great-grandfather. And he began to preach that kind of message again. You know, we need to repent. We need to draw near to the Lord. And if our nation doesn't, at least we need to do that as people and experience the refuge that God offers us because he still loves us. He still extends uh, his compassion, his concern to our families in the midst of the consequence, you know, that we have to endure even as these people were enduring it at the hands of godless people. Now, for a time, there was revival. Josiah came, a, a young man who became king, and, and there was a return to favor for a time, but not for all time. Eventually, they would be also defeated and carried into the Babylonian captivity. But that's the time of Zephaniah. It was a dark time in which people were discouraged. And the Lord said, I don't want you to be discouraged despite the circumstance. I want you to act in faith. Well, let's look at Zephaniah. We're going to look at chapter 3, and we're going to look at uh, a couple of verses, 11 and 12, and then 16 and 20. It's on 945 in your Bible. I'm going to help you out a little bit. Or you can just follow along on the TV as I read it here. Beginning at verse 11 and 12, on that day, when the, de- when the Lord finally enters into life and, and rescues his own or, 
or ultimately establishes the messianic age or ultimately comes again to receive us to be with, with him at the time of our death or at the time of his second coming. On that day, Jerusalem will not be put to shame for all of the wrongs you have done to me. You know, the Lord is eager to overlook our past, overlook our sin, forgive our sin, because I will remove from you the arrogant boasters, you know, the godless leaders that you've had. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill, but I will leave within you the meek and the humble. I'm going to remove the godless, but I'm going to leave the faithful. And the remnant of Israel will trust in the name of the Lord. Sometimes we ask, you know, what is God doing? You know, what is God trying to say by bringing such judgment upon our nation or upon our world and the horrific things that we witness and and the fear that sweeps our land? Let me just say that it is true that God does discipline his own children, but the judgment that comes upon the world is often not God's discipline of the world. It's just the consequence of bad behavior. I mean, if you behave in certain ways, and if you're godless, then expect a godless response. It's not even God's judgment. It's just the natural uh, reaction to certain action. Every action has a reaction. And if your action is godless, expect a godless response. You know, if we speed constantly in our car, if we run through stoplights and and disobey the traffic laws, we're eventually going to have an accident. Or before that, hopefully, get busted by a cop who's going to say, you know, you can't drive that way on these streets. And if you continue, perhaps even lose your license. There's just consequence. God not involved at all. Just consequence to wrong behavior. You know, if we fail to do our job at work, eventually it's going to show up in a review. You know, eventually it's going to be maybe a, a warning or even a pink slip. If you fail to do your homework at school... Eventually, you're going to suffer a report to your parents or, or maybe a failing grade or even a, a repeat of a certain class. There's consequence to bad behavior. You know, if I'm an absent father, you can do that for so long and eventually you're going to have an estranged family. Your wife and your kids are not going to be there for you and you're going to wake up and say, when did that happen and how did that happen? And it's just the consequence of behavior. You know, if I'm a superficial Christian, if I attend worship once a month or or twice a month and and maybe pray occasionally before my meals, but I don't apply my faith in my life and his values are not my values and I'm just a nominal believer, then my witness has no power to my children or in the workplace. And I'll say, "I, I don't know why my kids don't go to church anymore when in fact, you know, they're just a consequence to a certain behavior that was unfaithful in its time. And yet God doesn't delight in that. You know, sometimes we say, well, you know, what goes around comes around. You know, cast your bread on the water and after many days it will come back to you. I mean, this is just what's happened and I'm glad to see it occur. We would expect that maybe God in his righteousness would be happy to see people judged like that. Finally, you're going to get your own. You know, you're going to get what you deserve. But that's not the attitude of the Lord. Through his prophet, he has said, As surely as I live, declares the sovereign God, declares the God who is almighty and all-powerful, the guy who put those northern lights in the stars that we just saw in the, in the 
preview to this sermon. I take no pleasure in the consequence that the wicked suffer. I would rather that they would turn from their ways and find life. Why will you suffer consequence? Why will you not choose life? Well, it's true that he, he does discipline, but I don't think the judgment has come upon the world yet. It says in John three sixteen, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not come to judge the world. Judgment will come, but it's not yet. God has sent his son to save the world. Now, in the meanwhile, he does discipline those he loves. I don't know about you, but I was raised in a family that, you know, if we got involved with the neighborhood kids and we were doing something destructive and my parents got wind of it, they came out and they grabbed us and disciplined us and sent the other kids home. Well, what about them? And they said, they're not my problem. They're somebody else's problem. But you, you're my problem. And because they loved me, they entered into discipline with me. In fact, that's one way that you show a child how much you love them. I remember back in the day when I was raising strong-willed kids, I... I read and reread and, and marked up and tore out pages and pasted them on my refrigerator of James Dobson, How to Raise a Strong-Willed Child. It, it's probably extreme. It's a hyperbole. But nevertheless, you know, uh, I, I really poured over that. And one of the things he said is if you're raising a strong-willed child and you fail to discipline, they will keep pressing you and pressing you until they cross the line far enough that you will be forced to do something. Why? Because they want to know that you care. And they will press you until you respond. The Lord will respond to those he loves. In fact, the scripture says, God is treating you as he treats children. For what children is not disciplined by a father? If you are not disciplined by your father, you should question whether that man's truly your father. Moreover, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we learn to respect them because of it. How much more should we submit to the father of our life and find life? For our earthly parents disciplined us for a time as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant when you're receiving it, but painful. Later, however, we see that it has produced a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So actions have consequence and And because God loves us, not because God hates us, not because God likes to discipline us, but because God loves us, he will frustrate those who are his own, his own children, in order to turn them away from a destructive path. Life has consequence. Nevertheless, God does not forget his own. You know, in verse 12, he says, but uh, even though he will remove the boastful, even though there will be a judgment that falls upon them, he will protect those who have taken their refuge in him now now to be straight up with you those who were righteous when the whole nation was unrighteous also suffered the consequence of ungodly behavior and so do you you know if somebody runs a stop sign or speeds or drives drunk there are often innocent people that get involved in the consequence of of that bad behavior and that was true also in these days and yet they had peace that surpassed understanding in the midst of that struggle. It's true that when Babylon finally came and destroyed the city of Jerusalem, both the god Lee and the god Lus were carried away into captivity, and there was no distinction among them except those who had the Lord in their life in the midst of the struggle, in the world but not of the world, had a peace that surpassed understanding even in the midst of the consequence. 
And that's true, and that's valuable, and it's something that those outside don't see. They see us suffering the same consequence, but they don't see the peace that we have in the midst of the consequence. God does hide his own. He does shield us. He does protect us. And ultimately, he brings us out of the struggle into eternal life. The key verses in this prophecy of Zephaniah are in 16 and 17. He says, On that day they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear. Zion, do not let your hands hang limp. Don't be discouraged. Don't give up. The Lord your God is with you. The mighty one who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you or he will quiet you in his love. And he will rejoice over you with singing. In my mind, this is a, a picture of a, of a parent who uh, calms a child. Uh, when uh, our oldest child was born, uh, he was uh, premature. Uh, his twin brother died at birth. And uh, he was placed in an incubator, and, and uh, we could barely hold him only for periods of time and, until he grew to a sufficient strength, and not even sure that he would survive. And, and yet they said, man, you got to come. you got to hold your child. you got to talk to your child because it matters in his life. And I, I think about that image of uh, Carol. My wife uh, bought a, a little uh, baby blue elephant. And it had a music box in it. And we had to sanitize it or sterilize it to place in his incubator. But she would always leave that with him as we walked away. You know, that stimulation. And she would wind it up. And it played, You Are My Sunshine. And uh, she sang that song to him. And I think about the Lord singing over us. You know, in the midst of our struggle, in the midst of our fight for life, the Lord is holding us like a parent. And he's singing over us. And he's quieting us with his love. In effect, he says, don't succumb to despair. I know that times are hard. I'm aware that life is difficult. The world will lament, but don't let your hands go limp. And don't believe that God doesn't notice. Don't believe that God doesn't care. We are in the world, but at the same time, we are not of the world. We have a different life apart from the godless and apart from the godless, we have a strength that they will come to admire as they see us handling things differently than they. True love really knows no limits, and God's love for us knows no limits. Initially, we think, well, we deserve this as well, because as we examine our life, we realize that we are not perfect as well. In fact, I contend that those who know God know that better than those who don't. As you draw near the light, as you look closer in the mirror, you see every flaw, don't you not? I do. You know, I'm not a perfect person. As we draw near to perfection, our imperfection becomes obvious. And so we think that somehow we have merited and deserved what is happening in our life or what is happening in the world. But God's love knows no limits. He doesn't love us based on our behavior. All day long, he holds out his hand to an obstinate, disobedient people. You know, if God seems far away, guess who moved? He didn't move. He's still just as close as he ever was. There's a theological statement that comes from the scripture that says, we are saved by grace through faith in him. You think, well, that's a subtle thing to say. What does it really mean? It means you aren't saved by faith. You're not saved by your behavior, by your decision to follow Jesus. 
You're saved by his decision to rescue you. You are saved by grace, by his unconditional love that provided the way. But first it began with him. The motive began with him. His love for you caused him to send Jesus who knew no sin. That he might take your sin upon himself and exchange it to you with his righteousness. So that you might be seen as perfect even though you are not. His love knows no end. And then it concludes with these uh, heartfelt and, and loving words of, of saying, you know, what you experience now is not what you will always experience. And, and, uh, and, and even in the midst of the consequence, there can be peace and ultimately uh, restoration, complete restoration, ultimately complete rescue. For I will remove from you uh, the mourning that you have over the loss of the appointed feast. You know, there is no longer right worship. And we see in our world, you know, fewer and fewer people in worship. And it makes us sad. He's going to remove that burden and that reproach for the people of Jerusalem and for us as well. At that time I will deal with all who oppressed you, those who laughed at you, those who mocked the simplicity and the stupidity of your faith. Pious platitudes. What good is that? God is not going to fix this. No, I will, in fact, rescue the lame. I will gather the exiles. I will give them praise and honor, those who were mocked and those who were belittled, those who were made fun of, in every land where they have suffered such abuse. At that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. Wow. <laughs> Isn't that a powerful thought? Come home. Come home to God. You know, America, come home. You know, or you personally, if, if you've been far away, come home. It's, it's time to come back and touch base. It's time to remember that uh, despite how wayward you've been, despite how secular you've become, it's not too late to come home. And you'll be received like the prodigal son was received by the father. He said, don't even recount to me your sins. I'm just glad you're home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes. What he's saying is that our present circumstance does not need to be our future for our nation or for us individually, even if our nation continues a godless path. It doesn't have to be so for us. In fact, we can, we can be a cause for change in the lives of others and ultimately, if in the lives of enough, in the very nation that we love. He's going to save the lame. He's going to gather the scattered. He's going to give praise and honor to the shamed. In, in the Bible, there's a time when John the Baptist is in prison and he's going to be beheaded. He was the, the one that was born before Jesus, the one who prepared the people for the coming of Jesus, the Savior. And, and before he dies, he he transfers the loyalty of his own followers to Jesus. And he says, go to Jesus and ask him, are you the one or should we look for the others for another Messiah if, if you're not the promised Messiah? Now, I don't believe that John doubted that for a moment. You know, when he baptized Jesus, he saw something like a dove fall upon him and he heard the words, this is my beloved son. I, I don't believe John doubted that for a moment. I think it was just a, an activity to transfer the loyalty of his followers to Jesus because he was about to be martyred. And Jesus said to them, go and tell John the things that you see and the things that you hear. I'm not going to simply say, yes, I'm the Messiah. Tell them that the lame walk. 
Tell them that the deaf have their ears opened. Tell them that the poor have the good news preached to them. Look at the evidence. God rescues those who put their faith in him. Your present circumstance is not indicative of what your future will be. No matter how dark your present circumstance, no matter what consequence you're facing in life, return to the Lord and allow him to bless and prosper your life because God does not abandon his own. He is that loving father who will remain faithful. He will honor and praise us among the people of the earth. He will restore our fortunes even before the eyes of those who mock us. It's really a message in resilience. You know, as Zephaniah was watching Israel deal with difficult days in which they could be discouraged, he says, don't you be discouraged. And God is saying that to us as well. In fact, there's another place in the Bible where it says, we have this treasure of our faith, this, this hope, this, this relationship of love. We have this treasure in a jar of clay so that our focus would not be upon the jar, not upon ourselves, not upon our own life, our own merit, our own worthiness, but rather the treasure that's in the flawed, cracked clay jar. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but we're not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. For this light momentary affliction, you know, by comparison, you know, it seems, seems ominous and it seems not momentary. It doesn't seem light. But this, by comparison, this light momentary trouble is achieving for us eternal glory that far outweighs the struggle. We fix our eyes not on what we see, not on the experience, not on the consequence of bad behavior, but upon what is unseen. Since this is only temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. You know, as, as I thought about you know, resilience uh, in, in the face of difficulty, whether it be my own or whether it be the nation, uh, I, I came across an article in Fast Times magazine, which is a, a popular, trendy uh, leadership magazine, uh, that spoke about six habits of resilient people. And I was amazed at how spiritual they were. It's not a spiritual magazine. It's not a Christian magazine. What do never-say people have in common? Well, first of all, they build relationships. And that's what God is saying. You know, despite the circumstance, despite the consequence, come home. Build a relationship with me and also with other people because they need you in their life and you need them in your life. That will help you with resilience. Build relationships. Secondly, they reframe past hurts. They don't get paralyzed by the past. They're not focusing on what has happened badly to them. We've all suffered those kinds of things. What lessons have you learned? How can you go forward different than you were in the past? Third, they accept failure. You know, I am human. I've made mistakes. I should not be ashamed of that. I should realize that God says he will bury your sin in the depths of the sea. There are places in the sea where man cannot yet explore. It is so deep, so dark, and so high-pressured. God has buried our sins there. If he has forgotten them, why do we trouble ourselves with them? They accept the fact that they have failed. Four, they have multiple identities. Kind of an interesting way to say that they are not myoptic. You know, they are not narrow-minded. They realize that while one thing goes bad in their life, the Bible says... In don't focus on any one thing, consider your life in totality. 
because God is also bringing favor. Uh, there is uh, varied interest, varied ways in which God blesses us. We should not get hung up on one thing that is going wrong. Five, they practice forgiveness. And six, they have a sense of purpose. You know, this is especially true of Christians. You know, we, we don't become embittered. You know, we don't become vengeful for something somebody has done because that focuses on what is negative and what is bad and it focuses on the past, not on the future. You know, we leave that behind. That's on them. You know, God has forgiven me. I forgive you like God has forgiven me in Christ Jesus. And we have a sense of purpose, a higher calling. You know, not just what I've achieved or what I've failed to achieve in life, but I'm God's child and I'm God's reflection of light in this world. And that's an important thing to be, you know, for my family, for my friends. And even as I move in society, I have a higher calling, a higher purpose. And if you do those things, you will be resilient despite the circumstance, despite the consequence of bad behavior, either yours or the world's. Ultimately, the Lord says in verse 20, you know, he's going to bring you home. You know, come home. You know, find the peace that surpasses understanding at home in relationship with the Lord. You know, like the the wonderful memories that I hope that you have of your home or the home that you're creating for your own family. May God bless you to that end in his love through Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, it's a temptation to become discouraged as we see the darkness of the world and help us to realize that you were born in an occupied nation. Roman soldiers walked the streets, grabbed guys and crucified faithful people because they didn't quite pay homage. Lord, our life is not as hard as that. And yet you did not despise that circumstance, but brought light into that world. Bring light into my world too, Lord, and help me not to focus on things that are seen, but rather on things that are not seen, that I might suffer this temporary affliction and realize that you have a greater future planned for me in this life, a peace that surpasses understanding, and in the life to come. Lord, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if it's time to come home, the best way to do that is through confession. And, and we do that almost weekly here uh, to remind ourselves of all that God has done for us. And that he does not hold us accountable uh, to our sin, but is gracious and quick to forgive us. That's not true just in Jesus' day. It's also true uh, of the very nature of God, even in the Old Testament. David knew this. He said, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Psalm 130. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ear be attentive to my need, my cry for mercy. Because I know, Lord, if you kept a record of my sin, I could never stand before you. No one could. But with you there is forgiveness. So that we can with reverence serve you. Please.